Well, good morning, saints, and let's have a look at First uh, Peter chapter two. First Peter chapter two. Now we've been talking about Peter's emphasis on the hope that's set before us as well as the holiness in which we should walk considering the times in which we live. And chapter 2 begins with that theme. It's really a kind of carryover from the portion of chapter 1. The chapter division might have been spaced a little differently. But then he begins to address that which we have come to. Not only the person of Christ, but all that we are going to be made because of him. And so from verse 1 and following, Wherefore, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure or sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. And as we indicated, I think, last week, uh, many of the texts read into or unto salvation. Your centerline reference may note that if your uh, uh, translation does not. And so Peter is addressing in the context preceding this, our growing into the full salvation of God, which was purchased for us through the cross. As we emphasized last week, we are redeemed by the blood, we are saved by his life. And now as you go on from verse uh, 2, if so be that you've tasted that the Lord is gracious, to whom coming? As unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious, ye also as living stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And we're going to pause there and pray. We'll say some things about that, and then we'll go on with the text and try to draw an analogy from the Old Testament record. Our Father, we thank you once again for the sure word of prophecy that you've given to us. We thank you, Father, that we can have a confidence in the book that you've recorded. And surely you've promised to preserve it from this generation even forever. And so we approach it as indeed... It is your word to us. And so we pray by the spirit of wisdom and revelation that you'll give each one of us understanding, your anointing to hear and to speak. We pray you'll give us clarity, our Father. And we ask that you might speak words to each one of us beyond anything that might be audibly spoken in this time. In the name of Jesus, we give you blessing and honor and praise because you're worthy. Amen. All right, Peter begins to address this spiritual house that we are being built together with and through the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus being that chief cornerstone. Now the first thing I want to say about a cornerstone before we get away from it and I don't get back to it, we think of a cornerstone in our day as something that sets in the lower part of a building uh, that marks the date it was building, uh, built, the reason it was built and so forth, to whom it may have been dedicated, etc. That's not the idea of a cornerstone in the east. A cornerstone was the capstone. Uh, you can pick this up. We won't get into it now, but you can pick it up uh, in the uh, fourth chapter of uh, Zechariah. The capstone of a building was rather like a pyramid, and it was the last stone that went on top. And, of course, because of that, it had a very curious shape. And uh, uh, what Jesus is alluding to is, those, uh, is events that had happened in time past when the stones were being gathered for the building, and each, each one was being marked out for its proper location. They saw this curious shaped pyramid type stone and they were sure that it was a misfit that it wasn't going to go anywhere and so the builders rejected it because it simply wouldn't work in the building and so he draws that analogy Jesus does to himself in Matthew chapter 21 for example verse 42 the stone which the builders rejected the same has become the chief cornerstone or the capstone of the building Jesus Christ is of course that capstone and the builders uh, uh, originally were Israel. And, of course, the builders, Israel, rejected that stone because he didn't fit in to anything that they were doing. Their economy, their anticipations, he simply did not fit into it. That's why Jesus had to say to the two on the road to Emmaus, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken, ought not Christ to have suffered and to enter into his glory. They saw his glory, they did not see his suffering. I might say now that there are many in this present day who see his suffering, but they don't see his glory. They don't anticipate the fact that he's going to come to reign personally, visibly, physically upon this earth to uh, uh, confirm all the promises that were given uh, to Abraham, both those spiritual promises as well as those 
natural promises that belong to them. And so Jesus is that living stone, disallowed indeed of men. As you go on in the chapter, uh, verse uh, 6, please. Wherefore also it's contained in Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be uh, confounded or uh, confused. Verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to those who stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. And we'll let that alone for the time being. Unto you, therefore, verse 7, who believe, he is precious. But unto them who are disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. The, the uh, Jews who rejected Jesus Christ, of course, are being addressed here. Whereas Peter is talking to the remnant who embraced him, saying they rejected him, but you've embraced him, and this is the hope that's set before you. You also, as living stones, are being builded together and holy temple in the Lord in order to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Now, I have a handout for you, and before we get too far away from this, I want to give this to you. My, I didn't have very many of them here. hope it's enough to go around. The spiritual sacrifices that are offered by the believer. You are, of course, and Peter addresses this as he goes on, a priest unto the Lord. He's established you as a spiritual priesthood. Verse uh, 9, please. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, or more literally, a people of his own, uniquely his. Some believers go around trying to be as peculiar as they possibly can. That's not what he's meaning here. You are uniquely his, that you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, what I've given to you then is a list of those seven sacrifices so termed in the Scripture, which the believer offers now. Now, there is in Psalm 45 uh, a reference to uh, sacrifices of righteousness. I see that as a description of those seven sacrifices which are offered by the believer. Now, one could spend a great deal of time with these and just make a lesson out of them in itself. And we're not out to do that right now, but just to go through them very quickly... First of all, in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 17, Paul refers to faith as a sacrifice before God. Sacrifices, you'll remember, were intended to please God. They were not intended to please the individual. God was the one who needed to be satisfied. Paul said, without faith it is impossible to please God. And so faith is one of those sacrifices with which God is well pleased. Secondly, and not necessarily in this order, is the sacrifice of his body. We've labor, labored this uh, so much we're embarrassed to bring it up again, but remember that you are never called upon to dedicate your life to the Lord. Now, early part of my Christian life, we and I did a lot of that. As the old brother said, I went forward and I went backward. I stood up, I sat down, I put my hand up, I kept my hand down, and I went away just like I was before. That's because we're dedicating something that we don't even have. Your life is hid with Christ in God. You lost your life at the cross. It is no longer you that lives, but Christ that lives in you. And what God is asking for, therefore, is not your life, but your body. He wants a vehicle to express himself. He dwells in that body. And so that is one of those very important sacrifices that a believer makes in order that he might, first of all, have his mind renewed and, and grow to the fullness of the measure of the stature of Jesus Christ, getting a new frame of reference and a new value system, the sacrifice of your body. By the way, that's a one-time sacrifice when you do that, it is finished. God consumes it on the altar, if you would. And the third sacrifice then, again, not necessarily in this order, the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Uh, I've been working on a lesson on thanksgiving in itself and finding how critical thanksgiving is throughout the Scripture and how important it is to the believer because of how important it is to the Lord. And we do, even without realizing it, become a very unthankful people. We lack gratitude. And just to betray a little bit of where we're going with it now, the children of Israel, in fact, were in part carried away in captivity because they failed to give God thanks and to rejoice in the good things that God had given to them. So it's a very critical issue indeed, the giving of thanks. Not only being thankful to the Lord, but being thankful to one another. Uh, the fourth one, the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of your lips, giving thanks to His name. I know a fellow said to me a long time ago when he was objecting to vocal praise in the assembly, 
He said, well, I can praise God in my heart. Well, yes, you can, but you can't be biblical and do that. If you're going to be biblical and praise God, you're going to have to do it with your mouth. It is the sacrifice of your lips giving thanks to His name, articulating before God vocally uh, the good things, uh, not only that He's done for you, but that He is in His person. And I've given several passages there uh, which uh, uh, reinforce that. And fifth, the sacrifice of sharing. Uh, Hebrews 13, uh, 16, uh, in the same context with praise, uh, considered a sacrifice with which God is well pleased. Paul tells us in his epistle to the Galatians, you remember, I want you to do good unto all men. And what's the rest of the verse? Come on now. Especially to the household of faith. There you are. I just didn't give you enough ingredient, huh? especially to the household of faith. Jesus makes a very interesting comment, and to some people's ears a very hard comment, when one wanted to follow him, you'll recall, and he said, well, Lord, let me first go bury my father. What did Jesus say? Let the dead bury the dead. You follow me. There's an awful lot of activity, benevolent activity, useful activity that goes on in the world, which is nothing more than the dead burying the dead. And a believer needs to be very careful about how he... And now I am preaching, am I not? I didn't mean to do that. Believer needs to be very careful about how he dissipates his energies in those things which have only temporal ends. I'm not saying you shouldn't be engaged in any of them. Do not misunderstand. But you need to be careful that you do not dissipate your energy in those things that have only temporal ends. <coughs> All right, the sixth one, the sacrifice of good works. Uh Again, in the context of, of Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 16, as much as is within you, do good unto all men, especially those that are the household of faith. And then finally, the sacrifice of joy. And joy is one of those ingredients that God looked for in the children of Israel, which they failed to give him, to rejoice in the good things that God had provided him. Uh, just as a simple illustration of this, does it not give parents, yes, grandparents, great joy to bring a gift to their child or their grandchild and see that child exuberant with joy over that gift? And it's interesting when you consider it, while doubtless they're grateful for it, they don't always express that gratitude towards you. And the great benefit that you're receiving is not so much that they're grateful to you as it is that they're simply rejoicing in the thing you've done for them. Now, if you could put that same frame of reference in terms of how God deals with us, there are a lot of things that God does for us that we may not even be so conscious of the fact that He deliberately and specifically provided that for us, but He rejoices in our joy. And God enjoys seeing us joy over the good things that He's done. As a matter of fact, the psalmist, uh, I'm sorry, the prophet put it this way, I will joy over them with singing. Yes? And when uh, the, uh, I'm doing what I said I wouldn't do. I always do that, don't I? Uh, but since I've come this far. When the children of Israel were required to put the blood on the lintel and the doorpost of the house at the Passover, you'll recall, and God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over you. The, the Hebrew word is not pass by. Uh, that's, same word pass by is later on used in that same text but he is not talking about himself in that regard but rather the destroyer who would pass by because God is there and the destroyer was not looking for blood the destroyer was looking for God God was looking for blood and where God found blood he literally it renders not just Passover but hovered over and that same word can also be translated dance over and so God is joying over our joy. Very important text. So have a good time with what God does for you. It delights his heart. All right. Those are then the sacrifices which the believer priest in this new covenant economy offers before the Lord. Obviously, he has no physical uh, sacrifice to offer before the Lord in the sense of uh, uh, some substitutionary thing or for that matter, uh, a... Uh, an offering of, of uh, what's the word I want? Material things before him. All right. So backing up a bit now to the earlier part of the text. To whom coming as unto a living stone. I have to say a few things about this living stone. There are several words in the New uh, Testament that uh, 
are translated rock or stone. Uh, most of you have heard discourses on the contrast in uh, the usage of the word stone as is translated rock when Jesus spoke to Peter saying, uh, Thou art Peter upon this rock, I will build my church. He's really drawing a contrast. Peter's name, you'll recall, was Cephas, being interpreted stone or rock. Cephas, Cephas I'm sorry, is an Aramaic word and it means little pebble. And it comes over into the Greek uh, rendering in the word Petros. And the word Petros is little pebble. I am not qualified in critical Greek commentary, but I am personally convinced that the two words Kephas or Cephas and the word Cephas as it's translated in the Revelation stone, stone of, or pebble of voting more literally would render, are indeed kin words. I'm not in a position to say that with all authority, but they quite certainly seem to be kin words. In any case, Peter was a pebble. And Jesus is drawing a contrast. He's saying, thou art a pebble, but upon this mass of rock I will build my church. If we were to render the word petra, rock, as Jesus uses it regarding uh, the foundation of his church, then we would talk about that great Gibraltar, for example, or the same word is used in the parable of the wise builder who built his house upon a rock, a petra, so that when the, the uh, uh, rains and the uh, flood came, then it was secure because it was built upon that petra, that mass of rock. And so see that contrast. Now, having said all of that, there's yet another word that appears, which we have before us in this text, and it's the word lithos. We get our word lithiograph from it, and of course that has the idea of an engraving. A lithos is a carved stone, one that is shaped for a purpose. You could see this word used of gems, for example. They shall be mine when I come to make up my jewels uh, in the Hebrew text of Malachi. A jewel is a carved stone. Jesus said, Upon whomsoever this stone shall fall, it will grind him to powder. But whosoever shall fall upon this stone shall be broken. Curious thing about precious gems. If you break a precious gem, every smaller portion always takes the shape of the original. Always takes the shape of the original. And I think to myself, I what a parable in that. Uh, you can carve a stone and increase the number of stones that you have, and by so doing in many cases, increase the value of what you can obtain from it. And Jesus is referring to himself as a living or carved stone, one shaped for a purpose. Paul tells us in his epistle to the Hebrews that he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Isn't that a curious statement about the Son of Man? That it would be necessary for him to learn obedience? The idea is that he's learning the value of the expediency of obedience before God, the fruit that's born of obedience, and it becomes a testimony to us that he was tempted as in all points like as we are, yet without sin. The ben or, I'm sorry, the, the blessings and the profit of obedience and so he was a shaped stone he was carved for a purpose and the whole of his experience all that he went through in the course of his lifetime was to prepare him to a certain end I don't want to get too far afield with this comment but when the Lord Jesus came up to the Mount of Transfiguration the declaration of the Father was that he was satisfied with the Son and Peter you know frightened with this uh, experience of the manifestation of the glory of Christ literally it, he was metamorphosized before them that's the Greek word uh, it was as though the glory that was on the inside was coming out of the cocoon and it was manifest on the outside and Peter immediately says Lord let's build here three tabernacles one for you one for Moses one for Elijah and the scripture says this he said because he did not know what to say <laughs> he's terrified you know it's kind of like whistling when you walk through the cemetery and and immediately he was interrupted by the father. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. There's the testimony that this hewn stone had satisfied the father for everything that he wanted in a man. And from this point on, Jesus Christ became the last Adam. He was going to be the federal head of a new race of beings. And by his resurrection, he becomes the second man to recreate after his own kind, to rebirth, if you would. 
after his own kind. So Jesus Christ is that living stone that's shaped for a particular purpose. Now the curious thing about all of this is, in verse 5, how many of you are here this morning? Oh, bless you. God love you. <coughs> the curious thing about this is, in verse 5, he said, so are we. You also, as living stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, will you come with me, keeping your finger here, of course we're coming back to that, to Ephesians. I want to see a very brief reference to the same principle in Ephesians and 2. From verse 11, and we'll not read from there, but from verse 11, Paul is pointing to the fact that the Gentiles were alienated from God and strangers from the commonwealth of Israel and the covenants of promise. And we have been made nigh by the blood of Christ. Nigh to what? The commonwealth of Israel and the covenants of promise. The promises that were given to Israel, the church of Jesus Christ, has as well inherited. I'm going to meddle in my hobby here, if you would. D.L. Moody said one time the difference between a hobby and a hobby horse is you can get off a horse. And I acknowledge the fact that I do have some hobbies. And this is one of them. I regret terribly that it is being preached by so many in this day, and I think they're people that love the Lord, but in my view they're quite misguided, uh, that God has utterly and finally abandoned the nation of Israel and that the church of Jesus Christ is the substitute for Israel and we are now spiritual Israel. Nothing could be farther from the truth. The fact of the matter is that rather than God abandoning Israel, they are set aside presently in order they might take out of the Gentiles a people for his name and when the last Gentile is brought into the body of Christ, God is going to turn, according to Paul, and, um, and uh, uh, bring a deliverer out of Zion that will turn away ungodliness from Jacob and restore the nation of Israel to himself. And then we, as the church, will be joined because we are the bride of Christ, their Messiah, their King. We will be joined to the nation of Israel to be a part of what God did in the first place. And nothing that God ever starts does he lose. Nothing that God ever starts, does he lose? I remember I was, I've told some of you this debating, uh, strange debate the way it was set up, but I'll let that go for now for time's sake, with a Church Christ preacher about this issue, and, and he referred to Israel's wandering in the wilderness, or Israel as a nation, he said, uh, uh, well, God performed that little experiment. And I thought to myself when I heard that, what did God hope to learn? Experiment? Incredible. God never loses anything that's his, never. Nothing that's his is ever lost. All right, having said all that, if you look with me, please, to Ephesians 2. Uh, and I'll begin with verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you that were far off, that's the Gentiles, and to them that were near, that's the Jews. For through him we both, Jew and Gentile, have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore you are no more strangers and sojourners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Uh, in verse... Uh, uh, in chapter 3 and verse 15, he refers to the whole family of God in heaven and in earth. There's the Jew and the Gentile, the, or the Israel and the church, if you would. All right, back to verse 19. Therefore, you are no more sojourners and, uh, I'm sorry, strangers and sojourners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. You'll see that in the Revelation in the Holy City, 12 foundations in, which, in each of which is the name of the, uh, one of the apostles. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are built together for inhabitation of God through the Spirit. Now that's very important. Of all the analogies that are used of the church in the New Testament scripture, this is a most critical one in terms of Old Testament revelation that we are the building of God, the habitation of God by the Spirit. Other analogies are used to point to other very important things, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, and so you go with it. But the body looks to emphasize the habitation of God by the Spirit and the individual believers as they are joined together in that one building. And so what I'd like to do is to take you back to the Old Testament Scripture for a moment, if you would turn with me to 1 Kings in chapter 5. Remember again, Paul said that these things in the Old Testament were written for our admonition and learning. The Old Testament is a blueprint of the New Testament. I've asked it so often, will you forgive the repetition here? 
what is the first thing that you do when you buy a 1,000 piece jigsaw puzzle before you start to put it together? You look at the picture. That's right. You'd be surprised how many people answer me, well, you put the frame together. No, 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 no. You've already started to put it together. And you can see those neat little straight lines, and so you know they got a hook somewhere on the outside. First thing you do is look at a picture. This is what you hope to end up with if all the pieces are there. And I want to tell you, in God's economy, all the pieces are going to be there. I'll let that doctrine alone for right now. But all the pieces are going to be there. Those whom thou hast given me have I lost none. Now the picture is in the Old Testament. God painted a picture in the Old Testament. One dear brother, I believe it was uh, Luther that's... No, it wasn't Luther either. I'll skip that now. I can't remember for sure. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. The New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And so as God gives us understanding in the New Testament, we can go back to the Old Testament and see the panorama, the painting, the picture that God has given to us. And it establishes the truth of the New Testament. For out of the mouth of two witnesses, the things shall be established. Now, said all that, say this. Solomon in this text, and this context, is about to build the temple. Now as we are a temple of the Holy Spirit, which we have of God, we're, uh, our body is a temple, Paul said, we have of God, we're not our own, we're bought with a price. This temple of Solomon was a picture of the completed church of the Lord Jesus. Now let me give you the dispensational view of it first so we can put it in the broader context. I, I didn't realize until I came to Texas what a dirty word dispensation is. Uh, so if I may be permitted to define for a moment, a dispensation, as Paul uses the term in Ephesians, the dispensation of the grace of God, is simply a stewardship. The Greek word is stewardship. It means a responsibility to a revelation that God has given. Some people have twisted dispensations into an ultra-dispensational view, which would suggest, for example, that the church didn't start till Acts 15, and only the prison epistles of Paul are valuable to the church today, and so forth and so on. We recognize that all of those perverted, perverted views uh, do bring disrepute on the truth, but the fact of the matter is that God has given to us throughout history a an increasing revelation. Uh, one man fell and he came out of the garden. He was governed by his conscience. Uh, to that conscience, government was added, human government, after they came out of the flood. Then God called Abraham, gave promise to a certain family. Then he added the law to the promise of Abraham. So we have this constant compounding of the revelation of God. Nothing was said about blood, for example, as being a necessity for sacrifice when man first fell. He made coats of skins and clothed them. That's all that's said. Nothing was said. Of, certainly we had the death of an animal, but nothing is said about blood until you come to Acts 17:11. The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I've given it to you upon the altar for an atonement for your soul. That's the first time that God specifically points out the necessity of blood. So it's a compounding revelation. And that's what dispensation is. Stewardships. And we've come through stewardships, seven of them, when God will have completed his purposes. And so I'm going to take three of those to illustrate. For example, uh, uh, first king over Israel, Saul. Yes, there we go. Saul is a picture of the law and the strenuous um, uh, regulations, stipulations that Saul put upon the nation of Israel. David is a picture of the grace of God. And Solomon is a picture of the kingdom reign of the Lord Jesus. When Israel, as well as the church, shall enjoy all of the blessings and the inheritance that is theirs. Now, out of those, law, grace, kingdom, those are the three major elements in God's dealings. Uh, out of those, we have tabernacles. Under the law, you remember, we had the tabernacle of Moses. Yes? In David's day, we had that nondescript tabernacle that was built, you'll recall, on Mount Moriah by David. After he had numbered Israel, the plagues came, David repented, he purchased the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite for the purpose of building the temple. And he wanted to build a temple, and God wouldn't let him because he was a bloody man, further pointing to the dispensation of the grace of God when the blood of Christ was shed for sin. His son rather had to come on the throne, who had not had to shed blood, if you would, but rather stepped into the kingdom and power that God had granted to him. And so this tabernacle that David set up, you all with me? Okay. This tabernacle that David set up was a nondescript tent which David prepared for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and the Ark was removed from the tabernacle of Moses and it was brought, and of course it went through captivity and uh, uh, how you say to the, uh, uh, those old boys down there in Gaza, Philistines, thank you, yes. Uh, 
the, the uh, Palestinians. It went into captivity to the Palestinians. And, and then finally it was recovered again. And it was brought by David into this nondescript tabernacle that he had built. Now the reason I'm belaboring that point is because the Old Testament record said nothing about David's tabernacle. Just as the Old Testament record said nothing about the church. Paul said it was a mystery hidden in age past times, but is now revealed through his apostles and prophets. And so David makes this strange structure and puts the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and the glory of God in that strange structure. <clears throat> there we are. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, we are this strange structure. For which there was no pattern made in the Old Testament whatsoever. And the glory of God has departed the tabernacle of Moses, Israel, and has now taken up residence in this strange structure, the church. And we are indeed a peculiar people. And that tabernacle that David set up, that tent that David set up, that had no authorization in the Old Testament whatsoever, was intended to be a picture of the church as it is yet in its temporary body. And we have this treasure in an earthen vessel that the glory of the power may be of God and not of us. And what David's tabernacle is reflecting is the church as it's now containing the glory of God, but it is still in this uh, corruptible house. And it's going to take on an incorruptible house in due course, and there is the temple of Solomon. The temple of Solomon looks to the glorified body of Christ in that day when the church of Jesus Christ will return with the Lord and its inheritance will be realized. Now, in order to pursue that, you all with me in that? Any comments or questions? Okay, so we have these three dispensations. Moses' tabernacle law, David's tabernacle, the grace of God, and the uh, temple of Solomon, uh, the kingdom reign of the Lord Jesus, and the glorified body of Christ. But now that glorified body has to be prepared to that end. His bride hath made herself ready. Well, we won't get into that. So I want you to look with me, please, to uh, 1 Kings chapter 5. And when Solomon begins to prepare material, and by the way, I might point out that David, you'll recall, prepared material for the temple, but he, uh, though he was not per, uh, uh, permitted to build it. I might have gone back and gathered some of those texts. I did not. But David gathered material for the temple just as right now. Material is being gathered for the temple. But it's interesting to me that when Solomon is preparing to build this thing, it tells us in 1 Kings chapter 5 and verse 7, and it came to pass when Hiram heard the words of Solomon that he rejoiced greatly and said, Blessed be the Lord this day who hath given unto David a wise son over his great people. And Hiram, now who is Hiram? King of Tyre. Have it up back in chapter 5 verse 1. Here's a Gentile who is about to make contribution to the temple of Solomon. Don't you think that's interesting? Since God is calling out of the Gentiles a people for his name and we are the material for this building. And this Gentile is going to bring in material for this building. And Hiram said, I will do all your desire concerning timber of cedar and concerning timber of fir. And uh, wood in the scripture looks to humanity. We don't have time to labor that at length, but you have that manifest in the ark of, uh, of uh, the old boy in the flood. Um, Noah, thank you, yes. In the ark of Noah, uh, you have that manifest in the boards of the tabernacle of Moses. It is this temporary body that we presently live in that's subject to death, that is decaying. Verse 9, Hiram says, My servants shall bring them down from Lebanon unto the sea, and I will convey them by sea, which points to the masses of Gentile humanity, the sea always does, unto the place that you shall appoint, and will cause them to be discharged there, and thou shalt receive them, and thou shalt uh, accomplish my desire in giving food for my household. You just feed my men, and I'll do all this. And so Hiram King of Tyre gave Solomon cedar trees of fir according to all his desire. And Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 measures of wheat for food for his household and 20 measures of uh, pure oil. Thus, Solomon, uh, thus gave Solomon to Hiram year by year. And the Lord gave Solomon wisdom as he promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon. And they too made a league together. He's broken down the middle wall of petition between Jew and Gentile and he's made the twain one. My, the analogies are so profound in the Old Testament. And I want to remind you, though we'll not get into it now, that all of this wood and the cedar that was brought down was in the temple overlaid with gold. Divine nature. Peter says we are now sharers, partakers of the divine nature. And so all this Gentile humanity, if you would, 
that's being focused on here, brought down over the masses of the seas of the Gentile nations, is now going to take, play, take part in this habitation of God by the Spirit and be overlaid with that which points to the divine nature. Now let's look at Solomon's work and get a little closer to what we're addressing in our text. Verse 16, Beside the chief of Solomon's officers who were over the work, 3,300 who ruled over the people who wrought in the work, and the king commanded, and they brought great stones, costly stones, hewn stones, to lay the foundation of the house. Now there's Ephesians 2.20. Built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The apostles laid the foundation Jesus is the cornerstone, the capstone, if you would. Thou shalt bring forth the capstone thereof with shoutings of grace, grace unto it. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. That's the context in which that verse falls. And Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders did hew them, and the men of Gabal, I think you have in your King James stone squares, it's literally the men of Gabal, so they prepared timber and stones to build a house. Now here's the preparation of the material. And what I want you to see in this is this is you. He's bringing great stones. Costly stones. Why are you costly stone? It's the price that was paid for you. That's what makes. It's not your intrinsic value. May I, may I note once again. Pardon me. That the price of potatoes is strictly governed. By how greatly they are desired. Hmm? I mean, the more people want them, the more you're going to pay for them. Little greed figures in there, I recognize, but that's, that's the economy uh, that, uh, uh, how you say, dictates the value. And the reason that God say that we are valuable is because the price that he paid for us. And the price that he paid for us is indicative of the great love wherewith he loved us. God so loved that he gave. So great stones, costly stones, hewn stones, shaped for a purpose, lithos, to lay the foundation of the house. And then, of course, the construction is begun, and we need to go on for time's sake. Look, uh, please, to verse uh, uh, chapter 6 and verse 7. <coughs> and Solomon is giving the dimensions of the house in this context, and in verse 7. And here to me is one of the classic verses describing the, the building of the structure, the preparations for the temple. And it says to me, anyhow, worlds of God's dealings. And the house, when it was in building, was built of stone, what's that next phrase? Made ready before it was brought there. Isn't that wonderful? Before all of this stone is finally put together in the completed house, it all has to be made ready. And there is not the sound of a hammer, nor an axe, nor a tool of iron heard in the house when it was building. So when all of these stones got there, they were mined in the quarry. But when all these stones got there, every one of them fit perfectly. You also, also are living stones, built together in holy temple in the Lord. Can you get the picture? All that stuff that you're going through right now is God's hammer and God's iron tool that's shaping you for a purpose. Still, yeah, polish is a good word. It's my understanding, I'm no archaeologist, but it's my understanding that the great pyramid in the uh, midst of Egypt was put together to a tolerance of one ten-thousandth of an inch. That's incredible. Just staggering. And, and with all of our ability to machine in this day, that would be difficult. And the, the, uh, the tolerances were so fine that to find the demarcation lines between the stones was itself difficult. And here in Solomon's Temple, and many of you have been over there and you've seen the stones of the Western Wall, for example, and how huge they are. It just staggers me that they move them, much less shape them to fit. And here Solomon is building this temple with stones that are cut at the quarry, and when they get there, they fit. May I encourage you to tell you, you're going to fit. When you get there, you're going to fit. Precisely 
the destined purpose that God has for you. In Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, whom he called them, he justified, whom he justified, them he glorified. We are predestined, Paul said, to be conformed to the image of his Son. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, you also, beholding the face of the Lord in a glass, are transformed into the same image, living stone, living stones, transformed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of our God. And so all that carving that you're going through, what you understand, what you don't understand. I think probably when we understand what we're going through and why we're going through, it's a little easier to handle. But when you don't understand, Lord, why this? Of course, probably nobody here has ever had that experience, but there are believers from time to time who encounter those, those uh, difficulties in their life and you say, Lord, why this? But it's just a part of his polishing and hewing and the and I'm going to mix my metaphors here if you'll forgive me for that please but Paul said you'll remember that in that day we're going to be presented to him without spot or wrinkle or any such thing dear friend of mine one time was illustrating this I thought it was quite interesting he said when his mother would would uh, wash his jeans when he was a boy he said that she would take those jeans out of the washer and, of course, they were, in those days, run through a ringer. You ladies do remember that when they had ringers on. And, and they were run through the <coughs> Pardon me, a little bit of uh, uh, allergy difficulty today. You forget that. Um, and, uh, my, you can draw some illustrations from that, I suppose. You ever probably you run through the ringer? Yes. I believe uh, and my wife has a poster on the side of her refrigerator that says, the truth will set you free, but first it will make you miserable. And it's, and it's this doll, this rag doll is going through a ringer. <laughs> And he said after she did that, then she would uh, sprinkle them again a little bit with water and she would iron them. A little heat, you know, to get all the wrinkles out, as Paul said. And then the any such thing. He said she'd hold them up and if there was a, a string or a rabbling or anything hanging loose, she'd slip that off. He said that's the any such thing. <laughs> well, that's a part of the polishing. So I'm saying I'm mixing my metaphors, you forgive me, but that's part of the polishing that God is getting rid of the any such things. And, and when we are come into his presence in that day, we are going to be precisely what he wants us to be. And there will be in that day no more tools heard, no more preparations made, for you will be conformed to the image of his son. That's what God's after. That was his purpose at the very outset. All right. <laughs> a couple other things I want to note regarding this in connection with this tabernacle. Look with me, please, to 1 Kings chapter 7 and about verse 25, I believe it is. <clears throat> now, the labor of this tabernacle, this building of God, the habitation of God by the Spirit, was, of course, indicative of the Word of God. And it was set at the entry to the main sanctuary. And the labor was in two parts. You'll recall originally in the, in the tabernacle of Moses, it was in two parts. It was the base, which pointed to the Old Testament, and the labor, which pointed to the New Testament, which contained the water. And the Spirit didn't come in the Old Testament. The Spirit came in the New Testament. And so that labor is indicative of, of uh, the uh, New Covenant economy and the Word of God as it is ministered by the Spirit of God, by the believer. Now, when, Mo when Moses, Solomon built the temple then, then he constructed this vast labor, which has the same analogy to the Word of God. But in this case, rather than having a base, it's setting on 12 oxen. Now if you look at verse 25, and it stood upon 12 oxen, three looking toward the north, three looking...
pardon me, three looking toward the south and three looking toward the east, and set above upon it, and all their rear sections were inward. Now, what an interesting portrayal of the ministry of the Word of God. You understand the ox in the scripture is the sacrifice of service. The lamb is the sacrifice of innocence. Uh, the ram is the sacrifice of substitution. The uh, goat is the sacrifice of imputation. But the ox was the sacrifice of service, ministry. And it's interesting, isn't it, that under this labor, which is indicative of the word of God, are all these oxen, 12 of them, and 12 is God's governmental number, and it is as well the signature of Israel. That's why you have 12 months in the year, and uh, uh, boy, I'm afraid to breach this subject, but 12 constellations, and, and uh, so you go with it. Now I've opened a can of worms, so... Let that in alone, but blame blame the Lord for that. He brought it up to Job. I didn't. He said, Job, can you bring forth Maseroth in his seasons? The word Maseroth is zodiac. You say, ah, oh, Keith, you're an astrologist. I'm splitting this place. No, I'm not. Not by any stretch of the imagination. But God set the stars in the heavens, Genesis 1:14 says, for signs and for times, not for fortune telling. Y'all hear that tape? Did you hear that? Not for fortune telling, but for signs and for times. And the heavens he gave to the Gentiles to read the signs of his coming. And that's a marvelous subject which men smarter than I have given much time with. Eric Sauer, um, uh, E.W. Bullinger have both written classic books on that subject. Back to where we ought to be. So these 12 oxen pointing to the government of God are divided in threes. Uh, and four directions, and four is the world number. And so these oxen are positioned, or they are enumerated here, I'm sorry, in such a fashion so as to point to how the word of God went out. And so if you'll note, please, again, verse 25, three were looking toward the north. When the gospel of Jesus Christ began to go forth from Jerusalem, they first went north with that gospel. And three looking toward the west. Next, when the gospel of Jesus Christ was preached, it went westward. 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 There you are. <laughs> I'll catch that. And the ministry of the Apostle Paul took him over into Greece, you'll recall, and Italy, and so you go with it. It went westward. And then third, the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ began to go southward. And of course, tradition and church history tells us that Matthias went into Africa. North Africa with the gospel of Jesus Christ, believing that the Coptic church of, uh, of uh, Ethiopia is an outgrowth of the ministry of Matthias in those earliest days. And finally, the gospel of Jesus Christ went to the east. And you'll recall that, that uh, the resistance that came to the gospel has been most severe in the east. And, by the way, since I'm here on metal, the standard of living in the East manifests it, does it not? It's staggering to me that wherever the gospel of Jesus, this is not staggering, but wherever the gospel of Jesus Christ has gone and been embraced, even for those who have not believed that gospel, the standard of living of that area that embraced that gospel was always elevated. Because the reign of God falls on the just and the unjust. And where there are just, God blesses the just, and the unjust get the benefit of the blessing. And it's true in this nation. It had been true in England for so many years. It was true in Germany for so many years. It was true in France for so many years, not after the revolution. That's another subject. But where the gospel of Jesus Christ by governments has been wholesale rejected, the standard of living is abominable. And so it is in India, and so it is in Bangladesh, and so it is in Pakistan, and so it is in any country of the world where the gospel of Jesus Christ and its purity has been rejected. And I might add this appendage, if I may. It is absolutely staggering to me. It's more than, than a, a, an enigma. It is, it is bewildering. What word can I use? That there are those in this country professing wisdom in religion who would want to bring, import here from India those philosophies that are embraced by them. It is absolutely incredible to me. Look what it's done for India. And they want to bring it here? 
but they're doing it. And God said to the children of Israel, which could be well said of us now, you are replenished from the east. And that was the beginning of their decay and downfall when they were replenished from the east. Jeremiah's prophecy. Okay, I meddled there enough. Look with me to 1 Kings chapter 8. And uh, let's see, I think verse 9. Finally, Solomon brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, which, of course, was the presence of the glory of God. <coughs> Pardon me, I'm sorry. But I want you to notice an interesting characteristic about this Ark of the Covenant. In verse 9, there was nothing in the Ark except the two tables of stone which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel. Now, what else was formerly in that Ark? Rada budded and the pot of manna. Now how come they're missing? How come there was now that the temple was being built nothing but the tables of stone? Well, for this reason. Because first of all, the rod that budded was indicative of the ironic ministry of the Lord Jesus. Do you remember the reason for the rod? And the, the tribes of Israel were rebelling against the ministry and leadership of Aaron as a priest and Moses went to the Lord and the Lord said, We'll settle it once for all. He said, bring all the heads of the tribes. Tell them to bring their rods. And they'll put them in the darkness of the holiest of all. And he said, the next day we'll go in and get them. And we'll bring them out. And whichever rod buds, blossoms, and bring forth fruit and yields almonds, that's the priest I've chosen. You remember that? And so they brought all the rods and they put them in the holiest. The next day they brought them all out. And Aaron's rod budded and blossomed and brought forth fruit and yielded almonds. And by the way, the almond tree in the scripture is always indicative of priestly ministry. There's a natural analogy there. Almonds are good for your digestion. Can you draw that analogy? Makes things work. Priestly ministry makes things work. No, I'll let that alone. Anyhow, Aaron was designated as the priest, but Jesus had two priesthoods. The Aaronic ministry of Christ was a priesthood of time and of sacrifice. Thus the rod cut down death. But the Melchizedek priesthood of Christ is a priesthood of eternity and intercession. In the Aaronic ministry, blood is shed. In the Melchizedek ministry, no blood is shed. Remember David? He couldn't build a temple because he's a man of blood. Material was brought together, but the temple couldn't be completed until the reigning Christ, the resurrected Christ, who comes apart from a sin offering. You all with me? And so the Melchizedek ministry of Christ is indicated in the time of the, ta I'm sorry, of the temple of Solomon and therefore it is necessary that the ironic uh, uh, rod be eliminated. It's finished. It is finished. You don't need that anymore. And then the second thing that isn't there is the manna. And the manna is indicative of the elementary things of Jesus Christ. They ate manna in the wilderness. They didn't eat manna in the land. Do you recall after they came into the land, the scripture says that they ate manna until the old corn of the land. And the old corn of the land looks to the mightier things, the deeper things, the grander things of Jesus Christ. Paul writing to the Corinthian believer said, uh, I am determined among you to know, any, to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. How be it, Paul said, among them that are mature, we speak the mystery, I'm sorry, the truths of God in a mystery. What is he saying? He said, you Corinthians are a bunch of carnal babes. And we can't preach anything to you but first principles, and that's manna. But he said to them that are mature in the faith, we can, we can speak the, mis the, the uh, uh, secrets of God in a mystery. Can't get it out. And so the manna points to what was immature, but we're looking at the completed church when it's brought together in Jesus Christ in that day. And every one of us will be in that day sons of God, as we are positionally now, we will be practically then. Right now we are sons of God positionally and we are growing up, hopefully anyhow, into sonship. But there are a lot of believers that are going to have to die and be resurrected or be translated in order to come into the fullness of that sonship. But what is indicated here is that in that day there will be no issue of children. But it will be those that are mature before the Lord and we shall know even as we are known. Yes. All right, let's come back to 1 Peter. Our time's about up. 
Any comments or questions? Yes, ma'am. Yes. Yes, yes, it's going on right now. See, the material is being prepared right now. And we are being built together. That is to say, everything is being shaped, everything is being uh, uh, carved uh, to be suitable in that day. But in that day, when we're gathered into his presence and what Paul calls the manifestation of the sons of God, then we're going to be put together. But right now, we're being built. All right. Uh, I want to look at one other verse here. We've got a couple of minutes. In verse 10, please, of 1 Peter 2. Allow me to read from 9 again. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, people of his own, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Now that's a quote. From the book of the prophet Hosea, and I want you to go there with me very quickly, please. Go to Daniel and turn right. Some call it Hosea. I guess if you're from West Texas, you call it Hosea. It is a form. Uh, I'm sorry. It is a root for the uh, name Jehovah. Uh, Jehovah saves. Hosea is the word salvation. Hosanna, for example, chapter 1. Hosanna, for example, is the Greek form of that same word, save us. Uh, chapter 1. In uh, verse 10. Now, Hosea is the great prophecy regarding the restoration of the nation of Israel and so strongly emphasizes Israel to be the wife of Jehovah as opposed to the church, which is the bride of Jesus Christ. We must make those things quite distinct. There are some beautiful analogies in Hosea to the church and God's love for the church, as well as his relations, the relationship between husband and wife. I've incorporated a part of the prophet Hosea in the marriage ceremony, as I have been privileged to perform it for uh, a couple of my children so far. And uh, uh, it is, to me, a, a grand... Uh, message regarding God's love for his people, first Israel, and then Christ's love for the church, and then finally a husband's love for his wife. Uh, the counterpart of it, and that's not really the word, there is, a, I'm sorry, a parallel to it, yes, in the Song of Solomon. Except that in the song, redemption is not an issue, whereas in Osea, redemption is the emphasis. All right, verse 8, chapter 1, prophet Osea. Now when she had leaned low ruami, not finding mercy is the meaning of the word. No mercy. The low prefix in the Hebrew is a negative. Ruama is uh, mercy. So no mercy. When she weaned Lo Ruama, she conceived and bore a son, and God said, call his name Lo Ami. Ami is people, not my people. And God called his, said, call his name Lo Ami, for you're not my people and I will not be your God. He's talking about the rejection of Israel because of their unfaithfulness to him. And you'll recall the theme of this book is Hosea is called upon by the Lord to go marry a woman of adultery. And she's going to bring forth children of adultery. And God's going to manifest by that, that as Hosea's wife went away from him in adultery, so Israel went away from the Lord in adultery. And therefore God will give her a writing of divorcement and reject her. Verse 10. She is rejected, but not permanently. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered uh, measured or numbered, and it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, Ye are not my people, it shall be said unto them, Ye are the sons of the living God. That's the verse we just quoted by the Apostle Peter. And he is once again explaining to this remnant of Israel why they believed and the others didn't. And Paul said, Even now there's a remnant according to the election of grace. Now I want to look at another verse to draw a contrast here. If you look with me to chapter 2, <coughs> And by the way, this is a part of the passage that I've incorporated in the marriage service. It is that sevenfold 
vow to the nation of Israel by the Lord. I think that's staggering, that he's making a vow to Israel. And it begins with verse 19. And God said, I will betroth thee unto me forever. I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in justice and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. That's a grand promise that God gives to his people. And it's in a threefold uh, division. The Father, I will betroth thee unto me forever. The Son, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in justice and in loving kindness and his mercies. And the Holy Spirit, I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and they, you shall know the Lord. Spend a little time with that. It will bless your heart. Verse 21. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will hear, saith the Lord, I will hear the heavens and they shall hear the earth, and the earth shall hear the grain and the wine and the oil, and they shall hear Jezreel, sown of God is the idea, because God sowed them among, among the nations. And then verse 23, I will sow her unto me in the earth. In other words, I'm going to scatter Israel all over the world. And I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. Here he's talking about the Gentiles. And Paul so quotes this passage in Romans chapter 9 to appeal to the Gentiles. I will have mercy upon her that have not obtained mercy. And I will say unto them who are not my people, thou art my people. And they shall say, thou art my God. All right. So he's made of the twain one new man. Nothing of the Lord's is ever lost. Comments or questions? Well, yes, sir. First north, then west. Well, first no, first north, then west, then south. Yes, before east, before east. And when I was talking about uh, Matthias, you remember traditionally. Uh, that he went into Ethiopian South Africa. Uh, but, but you can look at it in terms of the Ethiopian eunuch. You don't need to go that far. The Ethiopian eunuch carried that gospel to the south. All right. Well, see, since the time of the separation of the tribes in Israel in the days of Rehoboam, God has always seen those two tribes separately, or those two units of Israel better, because Judah had with it also identified Benjamin. And then the other ten tribes, that's why you hear people refer to the ten lost tribes. Well, they're talking about all the tribes, say, Benjamin and Judah. And uh, uh, God has always seen them as distinct. But the prophecy here is he's going to bring them together as one again under the headship of Christ, and of course, Judah being the kingly tribe. The prophecy of Ezekiel chapter 36, uh, um, the Valley of Dry Bones, 37, yes, 36, 37. 36 then, precedes the Valley of Dry Bones. God is giving prophecy regarding the reunion of that nation. And he said, I want you to take two sticks, and I want you to write on one stick Ephraim for the whole house of Israel. And I want you to write on uh, uh, the other stick Judah, for Judah and Benjamin. And he said, then I want you to join them together, for they shall be one again in my hand. So what he's looking at in that text is that they are distinct now, but they will be joined together under one head. All right. Bless you all. Appreciate your coming. And Father, we thank you for, indeed, the glorious hope that's set before us. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness to your promises. And our God, we so thank you for the product that you will present to your son in that day. We thank you for the inheritance that is sure, yea and amen, in Christ Jesus. We bless and praise your marvelous name that you've chosen us out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation to make us a people of your own. We bless you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you all. Bless you all. Uh, did anyone not get one of these sheets and do I need to, are there any more? Did we use them up? That's what I get for not printing enough of them. Pardon? Oh, thank you, dear. Thank you very much. I just have one. I've got enough.
Yeah, I've got enough. Thank you so much. I need to turn the